The preaching of God's Word is found in Romans in chapter 12, there verses 1 and 2 as we continue this series of a handful of sermons. We come to the second treatment of this passage and we'll hear these two verses once more. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We have this brief series on uh, devotedness to God, being devoted to God. And last week we considered the ground or the cause and motive of all devotion, which is there in the expression, by the mercies of God. We ought to remember there is no devotion to God apart from the mercy of God. There is no consecration of ourselves in any sincere way, in any real way, without first not only learning about, but also experiencing His mercy. There is no devotion to God without a reliance upon and enjoyment of His mercy. And so this is one reason that Paul has set up the epistle as he has. You have 11 chapters largely devoted to the doctrine of God's mercy. There are parts where he deals with sin, and yet even that is for the display of God's great mercy and grace. He deals with our guilt in order to raise the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He deals with remaining sin in the believer in order to address the great privilege and grace of sanctification by virtue of union with Christ. And he deals with the trials of the believer in order to show forth the preservation of God's grace and the inseparable fact that we are loved of God in Christ, never to be removed. His purpose toward the Jews, his preaching of the gospel, his sovereign grace, all of these things summed up by these simple words, the mercies of God. (coughs) But here he presents what it looks like when one enjoys God's mercy. In other words, as there's no devotion or consecration to God apart from God's mercy, where there is God's mercy, there will be devotion. Where there is the enjoyment of God's grace, there will be one consecrating himself to God. These things are joined together. They're inseparable, even as the verse presents. For one who enjoys this mercy that Paul has set forth, what then does devotion look like? And Paul uses some illustrative language. He says that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, children, think of this for a moment. You hear in the Old Testament that there were offerings to be presented unto God. And you understand that some of it were grain offerings, some of them were animal offerings, and so on. But the main point is whatever it was would be gathered and brought near unto the priest and offered up in accordance to all the laws of offerings that God has given. Well, here Paul, very well familiar with all of that, as he was a Pharisee trained in the scriptures and so on, and had witnessed the offerings that were offered according to God's law, 
He says, here's what you're to do. You are to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice. Now, there's almost an apparent contradiction, a living sacrifice, because we know that the grand majority of such things as were offered to God in sacrifice must first be killed in their sacrificial uh, service. So here he says, a living sacrifice. What is it that's to be offered? Our body. But we ought not to think that it's our body as distinct from our body and soul separating the two. We use in our own language this expression, a body of work. And what we mean by that is the whole totality of the work that one has done. And so an athlete's body of work is looking at all the statistics. Uh, An employee's body of work is looking at the whole of what he's done. And here when Paul says presenting your bodies, he's not talking about merely your corporal uh, physical uh, part. He's talking about all that you are. In fact, in Romans 6, he's used this very word expressive of the same that all that we are is to be offered up unto the Lord, which of course he'll go on to say is your reasonable service. But notice it's to be offered up as a sacrifice that is living, not dead and so inactive, but living and so active. And so there is an activity both in the presenting of ourselves to God and in what follows having presented ourselves to God, that we would be active in our devotion to the Lord. In other words, we don't come to God and then we say, well, I'm just going to sit back and see what happens. It's not like going, for instance, to an amusement park where we go to a ride and the enjoyment of that is our merely sitting down and being carried along. Rather, we present ourselves to God by His mercy, we remember. Because of His mercy, we remember. And in His mercy, we're made alive in order to serve actively, which we'll take up later on when we get to the reasonable service. There's an activity that's going on as we serve the Lord. Notice as well, it's a living sacrifice, not an atoning sacrifice. Our presenting of ourselves to God is not in order to atone for our past misdeeds and sins. It rather is a consecration under the service of the Lord. And so when we look at this, we realize that the one who knows God's mercy truly devotes himself to God fully. And so by the mercies of God, the appeal comes, this tender and yet earnest appeal that by these mercies, those who know the mercies would present themselves entirely, comprehensively, completely to be devoted to the Lord. And so where it is that one truly knows these mercies, not just in a parroting fashion where they can recite them and answer questions and lecture and wax eloquent about them, but when it is that they are the subjects of this mercy, they have experienced this mercy, they are necessarily drawn with gladness to present themselves unto the Lord's service. We wish to look at three things uh, considering this complete consecration of presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Firstly, the scope of this consecration. Secondly, the focus of this consecration. And thirdly, the character of this consecration. The scope, the focus, and the character 
of this consecration. So firstly, the scope, and when we think of that word, we're talking about what is it? How broad? How wide? What is the full reach of what's being devoted? And you see it quite simply, present your bodies a sacrifice. Now we've noted bodies. This is an expression for all that we are. And so we see, of course, even in the text, that it's not just, well, your bodies outwardly are mindlessly to be engaged, but rather, though we'll emphasize this more subsequently as the Lord gives us opportunity in future weeks, there is a reasonability that is taking place. We are actively thinking and deliberately giving ourselves not only body, but body and soul to his service. So we're offering up all that we are and saying, here's my body, use it as you would have it. Cause it to be used for your glory. And yet even the word itself is often in scripture, bodies and its singular body is often in scripture used to refer to the whole man. So you think of in Romans, it talks about the body of sin. It's not talking just about the appearance of sin. It's talking about the whole of what sin is. And here, when Paul uses this, he's saying all of what you are is to presented, be presented unto the Lord. So in other words, the scope includes all that one is. All that you are is to be consecrated to God. Everything that you are. And of course, this will be expressed in other places of the scriptures where we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All that we are is to be devoted to the Lord. And as well, we are to glorify God, 1 Corinthians 6, with our body and our spirits, which are God's. That is, they belong to God. So all that we are is to be devoted to Him. So this is something for us to think about. Though it's right and proper for us to think through our lives in its various categories. We can't do otherwise than that. Some people have tried to say, well, all of life is one, and it's true. But the Lord has given us finite minds which have to think through categories. And so we talk about, if married, my marriage. We talk about, if a parent, my children. We talk about, if employed, my job. We talk about our family, our friends. We talk about our neighborhoods, and then we talk about our life in those categories. My married life, my parenting life, and my work life, and so on. And yet, we have to realize that all of those things are to be fully consecrated to the Lord. My life, as respects, if married, my spouse, is to be 100% devoted to the Lord. My life, as regards my private time, is to be 100% devoted to the Lord. My entertainment is to be devoted to the Lord. My games, my friends, are to be devoted to the Lord. My sleep is to be devoted to the Lord. My food is to be devoted to the Lord. Now, this is not to lead us into the legalistic tendencies of saying, this is the only diet you can eat, or this is the only sleep pattern you can sleep. It's rather to say that however the Lord would have us order those things, all of it at all times must be consecrated to the Lord. Now, this is where some can take a misstep and they'll say things which we understand and with the judgment of charity we can accept 
But they'll say things like, all of life is worship. And there's, of course, some seed of truth to that. If, in general, is meant, all of life is devoted to God. But if by that we mean to eliminate the fact that there are ordinances of public worship, we've misstepped. And here's the problem in much evangelicalism today. They take this principle and they'll say, therefore, public worship doesn't really matter. It's important, of course, but it doesn't really matter because all of life is worship. The Lord's Day is not a big deal because all the week is God's week. You know, public worship is not a big deal because all of my life is to be worshiped. But here's the point. All of your life is to be devoted to the Lord. And thus, in public worship, public worship is to be devoted, consecrated, and honoring the Lord. And so, yes, all of life is to be a devotion to the Lord. And thus, every category is to be governed by the Lord. And so, my physical needs, guided, governed by the Lord. My spiritual needs, guided, governed by the Lord. My emotional needs, guided, governed by the Lord. Worship, guided, governed by the Lord. Because being consecrated to the Lord means essentially this, what you want. That's my guide, what you want. And so what does God want for our marriage? Well, he tells us in the Bible. What does he want for our parenting? He tells us in the Bible. What does he want for our worship of him? He tells us in the Bible. How does he want us to live in the midst of trials? He tells us in the Bible. How does he want us to live in the midst of prosperity? He tells us in the Bible. All that one is, is included in the scope of this consecration. And then you'll notice the scope includes the fact that it is that we are offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Living. In other words, whereas it's true in one sense, as Paul himself affirms, we do die to ourselves, there's another sense in which we are now the most active we've ever been. Everything, every part of our life not just as it were all that one is, but always and at all times is deliberately to be brought under this consecration. I am living now for that cause, which is my reasonable service. So the body, all that I am is devoted and at all times is purposely, deliberately brought unto this consecration. So in other words, you wake up today and most of you will have done something like this. Either you'll have it right on your mind. First thought you have, today's the Lord's day, devoted to the Lord. That's right. Or maybe you'll struggle and you groggily comes to and you're like, oh yeah, today's the Lord's day. It's devoted to the Lord. And as the Lord's day, it has particular governance by God's word of what's acceptable and unacceptable on the day. And whereas that's true of the Lord's day, we ought to think this as well tomorrow. Not tomorrow's the Lord's day, but tomorrow, Monday morning, I wake up, I've got school, I've got a job, I've got a day off, I've got whatever. I am to live devoted to the Lord. Every engagement that I have waking up on Monday is to be lived out such that all that I am is deliberately living out according to God's word. Now, this is different than observing the Lord's day because the Lord has given specific prohibitions of what is unacceptable on this day. So we may not work those unnecessary jobs. We may not even speak 
those unnecessary words. Those are things peculiar to this day. But tomorrow, Monday, and onward through Saturday doesn't give us liberty to do whatever we should want. All that is before us is to be purposed for the honoring of God. And so the scope of consecration includes all that we are deliberately offered up unto God. The word deliberately includes within it a thought of a conscious determination. And so whatever your job, whatever your role, whatever it is that the Lord has given you, it is to be a thought of, I am doing this unto God. And by the way, you can think how this helps us work through what we should do or not. A friend calls us up, a co-worker invites us somewhere, and one simple question that may help us, not always, but may help us on many occasions is, can I do this consciously devoting it to the Lord? Now, that's not the only question that should be asked, but it is a question that should be asked. Is what I'm invited to do, is what I'm you know, included in uh, this, this request to do, is it something that I can deliberately say unto you, O Lord, I offer this up. This work that I've been called to do, this project I've been called to take, this uh, recreation my friends would have me do, this video others would have me watch, this participation and communication that I should be invited to uh, take a part in. Can I say sincerely, I am devoting this to God. I am purposefully devoting this to the Lord's cause. And you start to realize that there are lawful things, indifferent things, that must be approached in an altogether different manner than the world does. Is recreation lawful? Absolutely. The Christian goes about it for ultimately different reasons. Is sleep needed? No question about it. But the Christian goes about it not just for the natural purpose that is common to all mankind, but is going about it ultimately with the purpose of, Lord, I would serve you. My body needs rest. You've made me this way. And so I use my rest for this cause. Now, brethren, you start to see something. Things that are lawful and which are advertised to us by the world rarely, if ever, have this included in it as a motive. That means that part of your consecration to the Lord has to raise this question in your own mind. Here's an offer to me. Here's a product provided to me. Here's a conversation that is open to me. In and of itself is lawful, but am I able thoughtfully, deliberately, able to consecrate myself to God's service in this. The scope of consecration includes all that we are deliberately devoted to the Lord. This brings us secondly to the focus of our consecration, which is fundamentally God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. There are, of course, subordinate objects for our consecration. There are secondary things for which we consecrate ourselves to God uh, in. So for instance, in serving the Lord, we may have secondary motives, subordinate motives of doing good to the church or seeing sinners converted 
or whatever other advancement of God's kingdom. All of that's good and right. But none of those is the primary cause or reason. The primary cause, the primary focus is God himself. I devote myself to you. And brethren, when you get that, you'll start to see that there's no devotion to God that is in vain. There's no worthless devotion to God, whatever comes to pass. And so you live and you deny yourself. You follow God delightfully resting in his mercy and everything falls apart. Family turns against you. Job is lost. Your body wastes away. And the world says, see, it's worthless. You've seen nothing good come of it. It's all vain. And if you have this point right, you say, what are you talking about? My focus is God. God is honored in this. If I die and nobody knows about it, it doesn't matter. Do you realize this for a moment? There are men and women, there are young people in countries in the Middle East, in the uh, uh, Far East even, who by virtue of an ability to lay hold of electronic media, they read the Bible. They get converted. And so soon as they're converted and found out, they're put to death. No one knows. No one knows their name. No one will realize who they are. Their faces will never grace the pages of even a, a, a magazine that is committed to persecution. They're nameless. They're faceless to us. But their devotion to God is good. And God will be glorified in them. To make it as stark as possible, though we deny that this is ever true, if it were true that such a one brought no witness to Christ, they're converted, they devote themselves to God, and they're put to death, and nothing good comes of it in this life. Their life to Christ and devotion to Him has not been in vain, because they did it unto God. That's a fundamental problem in our culture, is that we miss out on this. When these secondary things don't come to pass, we start to wonder, is it worth it? I'm not finding joy in this because my family's turned this way, because my job's turned that way, because my health has gone the other way. And we start to lose our bearings because we've lost out that we're not called fundamentally and primarily to be devoted to those things. We're devoting ourselves to God. It's to God that we live. It's to God that we die. It's for His glory that we're concerned. And if He's pleased to bring me to nothing... It will be my honor because he's pleased. He's the sole cause of my life. He's the sole desire of my heart. In other words, the focus is fundamentally exclusive to God. You think for a moment, we have terms that describe a man who begins to become pleased by other women than his wife. It's adulterer. A man who is single-eyed to his own wife is a man who is chaste, pure, and good, and likewise a wife to her husband. And you think for a moment, a wife who would claim, you know, she's single-eyed to her husband, and yet she's disappointed that other men aren't noticing her. She's disappointed that other men aren't flirting with her. She's disappointed that no one's coming up to her and saying, what's your number? 
we realize that fundamentally there's a problem there. Her heart is now divided. Though she may have some degree of some desire for her own husband, now she's living as if her husband's not all that matters in this relationship. She wants other men. Brethren, this is what happens when we entertain secondary things and are moved more by them than we are for the solitary focus of being consecrated unto God. This focus includes within it a focus upon God over self. The whole argument of sinners, I don't like that, which comes out in some more reasonable and more developed arguments and some just as simple as I don't like that, is fundamentally opposed to devotion to God. Devotion to God, presenting ourselves to Him as living sacrifices means, I give myself to you to do whatever you want with. It is yours. I am yours. Do with me what you want. Now, we have to be honest and acknowledge we struggle with that. We often insert, don't we, these kinds of little protections we think in our prayers. God, I want to be devoted to you. We hear prayers of others. We read them of others. McShane would pray, make me as holy as one in this world can be. And we think for a moment, that's what I want. And then we start to entertain. You know what? That may mean affliction. That may mean difficulty. That may mean distresses. And so we'll start to pray like, God, I want to be holy. Like this prayer expresses, but please spare me from X, Y, and Z. Please let it be in this way. And you see what we're doing is not just expressing lawful desires, but in subtle ways we're saying, I'll devote myself to you with these strings attached. I really don't want all of that holiness if it is going to mean that I have to go through those difficulties. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be careless, but it does remind us it's not carelessness to abandon ourselves to God. What is unsafe about one who has known the mercies of God to say, I am fundamentally yours. Do with me what you want. I want you above all else. When you particularly think as well, he has not withheld from us his only begotten son. His love is immeasurably rich toward us. We think we love ourselves better by saying things like, protect me from that, you know, I want to serve you, but not if it demands that of me. I want to serve you, but not if it demands that of me. I'll hedge it out so clearly, and I'll paint the pathway so precisely that in the end, I'll have holiness at my decision, at my uh, desires, instead of the way you'll have it in me. Think again of that language. Living sacrifice. And what you'll realize is the Lord is calling us unto himself in such a way that says, you have me, all of me, the way you'll have me. My life is no longer mine. Though I'm alive now in ways that I wasn't before, yet in other ways I'm dead as a sacrifice. I'm not my own. Parents, you need to get this in your mind as well. Your children, though under your stewardship, are fundamentally not yours. They're God's. And it's right for us to have parental affection and say, Lord, I pray for good for them and so on. But in one sense, in offering ourselves up unto God, 
We're also offering our children up unto God and saying, they're for you. The reason I have raised you them is for you. You think of whatever the wickedness of the Spartans is in their ancient ways and so on, in their war lost, lust and warmongering and all of these things that they were doing. They had a focus. Our children are being raised for the solitary purpose of advancing Sparta. Our purpose is to train them up that when war comes, they will fight and die in fighting if necessary. And so when it was that their children came back and they were battle-scarred and they were deprived of many things, blinded, wounded, they were honored. And their mothers, as the adage goes, would say unto their children, here's your shield, either come back with it or on it, or don't come back at all. What's the point? If you come back without your shield, if you come back not on your shield, then you are dead to me because my purpose in training you is for the purpose of the state of Sparta. Brethren, what's our purpose of training our children? It's not so that they'll have nice lives. It's not so that they'll get this job or that job. It's not so that they'll meet this perfect person, have this perfect marriage and have that kind of house and these kind of children. It's so that they will live and die for Christ, period. That's the reason. This doesn't mean we ignore the temporal things, but even as we heard in the catechism class, we seek those things only in so far as it is for His glory and their good. Everything else, we don't want them to have. If it's not for His glory, keep it from them. If it's not for their good, strip it from them. Our sole desire is that Christ would be honored by them. This is what it is to be consecrated in our parenting. It's not so that when we're gray-headed and older in life and failing that we'll have a comfortable retirement and our children and grandchildren and so on. That's a privilege that the Lord may give us. But we would rather have it so that if it's that, every single one of them is flourishing in Christ. And if they have died, that they have died for Christ and in Christ. Our great concern is that all that we are is focused upon God. So when Job is tested with his trial, he's able to say, Blessed be God. He has given and He has taken away. Blessed be the name of God forever. That is consecration to God. Everything I have is for Him. Job was a wealthy man. All of his wealth was taken. Job had many children. All of his children taken. Job was a healthy man. All of his health was taken. And he's able to say, blessed be God. Why? Because Job was consecrated to God over self. It also means to be consecrated to God over the world. And we'll see this more in the future, so we won't spend much time on this just to note it, when it says, be not conformed to this world. The world is not our master. We're not living for six figures. We're not living for a nice retirement. We're not living for food and drink and health. That's not what we're living for. But brethren, in our culture particularly, we have to make ourselves see that and say it because it's easy to live for that and justify our living for it as if it is mixed up with the right thing. In other words, 
if our children die at 20 years old and are dying at 20 years old as a Christian devoted to the Lord, we rejoice. The Lord had his purpose. And though we mourn and weep as Abraham wept over his wife from his youth who died rather old, yet fundamentally our focus doesn't waver. God has done what he would do. If our children live to 80 or 90 or 100 years old and are rich beyond compare and have corporations that they've started and yet they fail to honor Christ, that is death to us. We despise it because our focus is God over the world. Young people, when the world allures you with friends and laughter and drunkenness and all sorts of immorality and all the pressure comes being put upon you, you must see that by the mercies of God, you are called to be consecrated to the Lord. Whatever else anyone says, He is to be your focus over the world. Well, thirdly, the character of this consecration. Imagine that every one of us has known what it is to stand either on the real high dive of a pool and to realize looking down that now we're in a position that we don't want to be in. Perhaps it's as simple as a cold pool and we'd rather not jump in, but now there's peer pressure to push us that way. Though there is some sense in the Bible that kind of support, Notice the character of this consecration is not a character of pressure. Rather, it is a character of willingness because of the mercy of God. I am willing to devote all I am without qualification to the Lord. Why? Because of his mercies. Now we consider that last time. But notice the simple word present. That ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. The word is earlier translated in Romans 6 as yield. So we are bringing ourselves willingly under something. But here the language of offering our bodies as a sacrifice demands that there's a sense of presenting. We're not just yielding. We're offering them up. We're willingly bringing them to the Lord. And so we're willingly bringing all that we are to the Lord. Now, brethren, this is something that should be very clearly understood from us from the beginning. Would God want us to come and begrudgingly say, well, I guess since you're God and this is right and it's my duty, I guess I have to do this. Of course, we would know that that's off. Something's wrong with that. But brethren, the question might be asked, how is it possible that one be could be made willing to say, whatever you have in store for me, I devote myself to you. What could make one so willing to do this? And it's there, as we saw last week, it's by the mercies of God. It is as we realize the mercies of God that we are then made willing. It's as we know the riches of the treasures of his mercies that we are made glad to give ourselves to him. Why is that? Because the mercies of God tell us that the one we're devoting ourselves to is lovingly devoted to us. There's a world of difference. As you can imagine, for instance, at the ancient, in our own nation's history, slave trading centers, when there would be a man separated from his married wife brought upon the auction stand. 
And there's a cruel slave owner who is now having a bidding war upon this man. And the man realized he can do nothing. And this man who's bidding for him is a man who likely will not care for him, who will mistreat him and do all sorts of unspeakable things merely to get gain by his labor. Something in each of us revolts at the concept. You think as well in our own day, the horrors of sex trafficking and how there are young girls taken and groomed and so on and then forced to do things unspeakable against their will. And all of those things come to us and we say, how grotesque, how absolutely abhorrent. But brethren, as dark and as real as those horrific things are, equally real is the contrast that the Lord who says, devote yourself to me, is one who is only good, who will only do what's good for us, who only cares for what's good for us, who will love us and has already proven that love to us, whose mercies are begun in this chapter, or rather in this book, run 11 chapters before he gets to this exhortation, present your bodies a living sacrifice for me. Now God could have started the whole of the Bible differently and the whole of Romans differently and said, listen, I'm God, that's it, devote yourself. That would be right. And fundamentally, there's propriety in that. But the God who calls us so to present ourselves in this fashion, comprehensively consecrating ourselves to God, is a God who has said, by word and deed, I am comprehensively committed to your good more than you are. I love you more than you understand, more than you can even, if we use this expression, love yourselves. The good that you're trying to navigate and secure by all of your qualifications are infinitely beneath the good that I have for you. What I desire for you, what I'll put you through as sometimes you would speak of it, what I have for you is all motivated by incomparable love for you. Do you want proof of it? I'll give you my beloved son. My beloved son, who is infinitely superior to you, who is immeasurably greater than you are, who is essentially more dignified in ways that cannot be calculated than you are. Such is my love for you that I will give you my son and he will bear your sins. He will suffer your reproach. He will suffer your judgment. He will do all of these things. And think of this for a moment. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit willingly go about this work to redeem all that we are. God didn't sit there in heaven and say, well, let's think. How can we secure their salvation in a way that will avoid the difficulties of pain and sorrow and shame? He said, this is how we're going to do it. In spite of the fact that it demands pain, in spite of the fact that it demands shame, in spite of the fact that it demands sorrow. And why would God so willingly do that? Because of his tender mercies, his compassionate love, for us. And now, having established that, Romans 1 to 11, 
He says, seeing how fully God is devoted to you because of his love, because of his compassion, devote yourself willingly to him. Many have lived long enough to go to weddings knowing both the bride and the groom and the sincerity of their love to one another. And there's a joyous expression and a resonance within our own souls when we hear the groom say, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife with eagerness, with delight, and their sincerity proved by previous things. And the bride responds with an equal encouragement an equal zeal, and I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband. And there's a reciprocation of love where both is, are saying, I am no longer anyone's but yours. Brethren, that's what is happening here. God is saying, I am your God. I have sealed it with the blood of my son. I have shown it, secured it. I have applied it and will continue to apply it. And the response that is expected is, and I take you to be my God. I gladly give all that I am to your cause. The character is one of a trusting, glad willingness, wherein we lovingly present all that we are because God has lovingly given all that he is to us. As we close, there's surely something that's worthy of examining. We think of our obedience, its meager forms, and we can think in a number of ways, how is it? How is my devotion to God? Is it hesitant? If I analyze my prayers, am I often hedging? Am I often qualifying? Am I often tying strings to it and saying, well, that if only this would happen? Am I hesitant? Well, why am I hesitant? And two reasons could be found among others. One is, we simply don't understand the compassions of God. We acknowledge it on paper. We subscribe to it in our confession of faith. We contend for it in arguments. But when it comes down to the winning of our hearts, we really, in secret, in private, in sincerity, are unconvinced that He is as merciful as His Word tells us He is. And so there's need then, if our uh, devotion to the Lord is hesitant if we're often fumbling over ourselves and stalling and hesitating. We have need to go again to the mercies of God and to consider well how rich, how full, how real is His love to us. And when those thoughts come in our mind as the Lord in our daily readings might come and convince us of some duty and we say that's what is needed. But I realize if I take that stand, if I say those needed words, if I pursue that course, I will be exposed by others and others will come against me and I'll feel the pain of that. Then we need to say, but God is good. God loves me. He cares for me. The blood of Christ has testified of that. I am no longer mine but his. Maybe it is as we examine, it's not so much hesitation as it is bitter self-reliance. This is my duty. I've got to go about my duty. This is what I'm responsible for. Of course, which has a degree of truth to it. It is our duty. It is our responsibility. We ought to go whatever the cost to do it. But the Lord would not have us go in the way of consecration 
merely eyeing our duty and merely repeating as some self-righteous individual that I just got to do it. This is what I'm supposed to do. Do you imagine a husband coming to his wife and saying, I love you. And she says, I, I love you too. Why are you saying that? Well, because it's my duty. I have to do it. Well, sure, it's your duty. You have to do it. But is there no delight in it? Is there no pleasure in it? Is there no gladness in it? And surely the Christian has only reason to give himself devotedly to God in obedience with delight because the one he obeys is infinitely good, infinitely uh, precious to him and gracious. And so as we examine those things, we have caused them to repent by the mercies of God. But here as well, we close with, here is cause for encouragement Encouragement to relinquish the last thread that we hold on to of our lives and to say, it's all God's. My time on my own is God's. My time at my work is God's. My sleep, my food, my rest, everything is God's. My time with my spouse, my time with my friends, my time at my work, my time everywhere, all that I am, thoughts, words, actions, desires, are now devoted to God, whatever the cost. Why? Because that's what God has done for us. Whatever the cost is, and brethren, there's no greater cost than the blood of the incarnate Son of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he says it to his Son incarnate. Incarnate for us. The love of God to us is our grand encouragement. The work of Christ securing our salvation is our grand encouragement, which calls us to and endears us to God, who gave us all to us. This then leads us by his grace gladly to give all that we are to him. Brethren, as we do, what we'll find is all of those fears were but fables. Doesn't mean that there is not cost in following Christ, in denying ourselves, but it means that what we feared was exaggerated. What we feared is real, but what we ignored is real as well. The joy of walking in loving fellowship with God is superior to every trouble you and I will face in this life. So secure by his grace, not only the persuasion, but the enjoyment of his mercies, and you will secure that which will bind you gladly to give all that you are in devotion to the Lord. Would you stand with me for prayer?